One of the best-known passages in all of the Bible. Even people who don't really know the Bible often know this passage. 1 Corinthians 13 is one of the most loved passages in all of the Bible. Even people who don't really love the Bible often love this passage. In a sense, 1 Corinthians 13 is Christianity distilled. For the God who is love, has given us a new commandment that we love one another. Indeed, Christianity almost had to coin a new word to explain this kind of love. You see, the Greeks had a word for erotic or romantic love, and that was the word eros. Uh, it's the kind of love that happens suddenly and automatically and, 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 and amorously one to another. They knew that word. The Greeks, the Greeks had a word for brotherly love, uh, and that was phileo, from which we get the word Philadelphia. Uh, phileo was a reciprocal kind of love. I, I love you because you love me. You're nice to me, so I'm nice to you. Yet the Bible took a very obscure word. It wasn't used a lot in the ancient world, and uh, it made it the word to describe the essence of biblical Christianity. 1 John 4.8 says, God is love. And the noun is agape. That is the word the Bible will use. Agape love is a self-sacrificial kind of love. Romans 5.8 sets us straight that, that God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners... Christ died for us. It is this powerful example from which the Son of God commands us to love one another. To love not just our friends, but Jesus says even to love our enemies. Now, self-sacrificial love was to be the hallmark of God's church. Jesus said in John 13 that by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. In a world where retaliation is the currency of humanity, those belonging to Jesus are to be a people who, who turn the other cheek and who go the extra mile. Why? Not because we're dupes or rubes or doormats, but because our hearts are supposed to be overflowing with agape love. We love because He First, loved us. Behold the manner of love the Father has lavished upon us that we should be called children of God. And so in our time together today, let's listen to the Holy Spirit's valuable counsel about love as the Christian essential. Turn with me in the Word of God to 1 Corinthians 13. And as you turn in the Word of the Lord to 1 Corinthians 13, let's turn to the Lord of that Word in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we invite You today to speak with clarity and charity, to roar like a lion and whisper 
in your still small voice that we might see biblical love as the essential in the Christian situation. We pray, Lord Jesus, that we wouldn't just be sappy and sentimental and syrupy in our love, but that we would be biblical and self-sacrificial. That You would change our minds about love and then change our walks because You've renewed our minds. You have set the example in Jesus in this, and may we become Christ-like in our lives as well. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So the Word of God says in 1 Corinthians 13, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I have not love, I have nothing. If I give away all I have, if I I deliver up my body to be burned, but I have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophecy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. Now, when I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, and and then I shall be fully known, even as I have been fully known. So now, faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. Now the structure of our scripture is quite simple. In verses 1 to 3, Paul demonstrates the supremacy of love over all other options. In verses 4 through 7, Paul gives us sort of a working definition of biblical love. And finally, in verses 8 through 13, Paul gives us a triad of Christians' enduring virtues and how love is the crowning of the three virtues that are enduring. The Scripture structure shall be our structure today, and so we begin by focusing in on verses 1 through 3. 1 through 3. Which brings us to our first point today, and it is this. Possessing anything or sacrificing everything without biblical love is nothing. Possessing anything or or sacrificing everything without biblical love is nothing. Verse 1. 
If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and I understand all mysteries and all knowledge and I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I have not love, well, I'm nothing. And if I give away all I have and if I deliver my body to be learned, uh, burned, but I have not love, well, I gain nothing. Now, you got to remember, the Corinthians were absolutely infatuated with the sensational gifts. They, they jockeyed to be seen as doing what was supposedly more impressive. They thought God's church was a stage for their performances. Uh, to which the Holy Spirit moves the pen of Paul to write a more excellent way. They thought... They could show both, but God was going to show them that wasn't the point. You see, if you possess anything, even the most spectacular of gifts, but you have not love, if you use your gifts in self-serving, self-aggrandizing, self-promotion, the Bible would say you've abused your gifts. For the Bible says your gifts were given for one reason, for the common good. And so to the always preening peacocks of Corinth, the gifts of knowledge and faith and tongues seemed to be the most valuable because they were the most visible. And therefore, they were the mistaken pinnacle of their hierarchical spiritual model. And Paul takes what they think is everything and says, without love, these things are nothing. Paul is not saying these gifts necessarily exist. He's using hyperbole to say, even if you had the most spectacular of gifts, even if you had them to the highest degree you could imagine, if you possess them without love, it is nothing. I want you to notice the if next to each gift. Because he's speaking of the hypothetical. If... I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love. I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all the mysteries and have all the knowledge, and if I have faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And if I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but I have not love, I gain nothing. Paul is not saying that we can speak in the tongues of angels, nor that angels necessarily even speak in angelic tongues. When angels speak in the Bible, they always spoke in human languages that the people could understand. Even when they speak in Revelation in heaven, John can understand them in his human language. And when the gift of tongues is seen clearly and described clearly in the book of Acts, People spoke in existing human languages. Now, there were languages they hadn't previously learned and previously spoken. They were suddenly supernaturally able to speak in them. But even if one were to say, well, you know, tongues in Acts is somehow not the kind of tongues that's in Corinthians, I want you to notice that 1 Corinthians 14 that we'll be getting to in a few weeks tells us that if someone speaks in tongues in church, an interpreter must be present. 
Because the goal of tongues is the same as the goal of any other gift. And the goal of any spiritual gift is mutual edification. Never personal exaltation. And it's edification through communication, even if it required interpretation. But it was never merely ecstatic entertainment for an individual's personal private benefit. And yet Paul says, hey, even if we spoke in something spectacular, even if we spoke in something angelic, even to do that without love is utterly useless. It would be meaningless, voiceless, auditory turbulence akin to a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Now, gongs and cymbals were not randomly chosen noisemakers. They were jarring, contextual reminders of the futility of the pagan worship around them. You see, the Greek god of wine, festivity, and wild frenzy was Dionysius, whom the Romans called Bacchus, but it's the same god, Dionysius and Bacchus, the god of wine, festivity, and wild frenzy. And, and, and followers of Dionysius or Bacchus in and around Corinth, well, they would head off to the mountainside away from the prying eyes of society to get involved in their pagan revelry. And there, Dionysius' devotees uh, would, would gather together in drunken revelry, and they were inspired into a state of ecstatic frenzy, dancing wildly to the clanging of cymbals. That's how they did it. Hence the reference to the clanging cymbal. Now we know that Corinthian pagans worshipped Dionysius because we found archaeological evidence in reliefs of Dionysius in the surroundings of ancient Corinth. And, and the noisy gong is another contextual piece. Uh, we think of a gong as like the gong show. That's not what's probably in view here. Uh, the gong is different. The gong is probably, the way the word is in Greek and what the situation was in Corinth, it's probably a very large brass acoustic vase uh, that was used in Greek theater as a resonator. It sent the sound further. It was an ancient sound amplifier. You've got to remember, Corinth, one of the things it was world-renowned for was its bronze working. And they made two things in bronze that were particularly sought after. Highly polished bronze mirrors, which were the only mirrors you could pretty much get in the ancient world, and these special resonators of solid brass that looked good and carried sound far. And so the Apostle Paul, always the missionary, wisely contextualized his message, and he took items the Corinthian Christians knew were tied to pagan worship, especially items that seemed connected to ecstasy and excess. Remember, how does this section begin? Every time he introduces a new section in the book of Corinthians, he says, now concerning this topic. And so back in chapter 12, when Paul begins the subject of spiritual gifts, he says, now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. And he was hearkening back to how many of them were led. How they were led to mute idols into ecstatic utterances. By what? By the clanging symbols of Dionysius and the loud amplification of their noisy gongs. Now, Paul is saying that without love, 
Even angelic communication leaves only a hollow reverberation. They become crass disruptions, not helpful instructions. And so too it was true of of all the other gifts they held in high esteem. Verse 2, and if I have prophetic powers, able to understand all the mysteries, and remember, nobody's going to have that but Christ, And, and I had all knowledge, and nobody has that but God, if I had all that, but I didn't have love, I gained nothing. He's not saying you have that, he's saying that even if I had it, without love, it would be nothing. So scripture is saying even the best speech of heaven or of men without love is only noise. Even the greatest truth spoken the greatest way without love is nothing. Even if you have the gift of faith, even if you had all faith, which no one has but Jesus, even if you had faith enough to do the impossible, remember mountain moving faith is is impossible faith, God has seen fit to do many impossible things through faith in Scripture. And yet we have not seen any literal mountains moved, at least in Scripture. Not one. We've seen the dead rise, metaphoric mountain. The blind see, metaphoric mountain. The deaf hear, metaphoric mountain. We have not seen literal mountains move. And so in a a similar manner, no one probably literally speaks in angelic tongues or languages. The point he's making is, even if you could do everything, if you did it without love, it's worth nothing. That's the point. If I speak in the tongues of men or angels but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Even if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge and I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I have not love, I'm nothing. Now remember how the carnal Corinthians were using their gifts in pride to showboat before one another instead of using their gifts in love to serve one another. So the Holy Spirit wisely says, no, let me show you a more excellent way. Let me show you that even if you possess everything, but you lack love, you've gained nothing. Paul goes so far as to say that even if I give up everything, but I do it without love, it counts for nothing. Did you know that even self-sacrifice can be self-centered? That's how wicked our hearts are. Even self-sacrifice can be self-centered. Jesus said so in Matthew 6.2. When you give to the needy, sacrifice, sound no trumpet before you do, as the hypocrites do in their synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. Paul says the same. Look at verse 3. If I give away all that I have, and I deliver up my body to be burned, but I have not love, I gain nothing. How can giving up everything gain me nothing? Well, giving from legalistic obligation or giving for human recognition or or giving to simply sort of salve a guilty conscience, none of that amounts to anything in the eyes of God. Did you know that out of hate, 
Some people blow themselves up in martyrdom, and it gains them nothing from God. And that brings us to our second point today. What is and what isn't biblical love? What is and what isn't biblical love? Our, our culture is quite confused about love. People say, I love you. But what they really mean is, I love me, and right now I want you. Years ago, the British evangelist Alan Redpath framed the difference between biblical love and, and our culture's unholy twisting of it. Redpath tells the story of a young woman who came to her pastor desperate and despondent. She said, there's a man who says he loves me so much that he will kill himself if I don't marry him. What should I do, pastor? Do nothing, the pastor replied. That man doesn't love you. He loves himself. Such a threat isn't love. It's pure selfishness. Friends, I want you to look at verse 4. For biblical love is patient and kind. Biblical love does not envy or boast. Biblical love is not arrogant or rude. Biblical love does not insist on its own way. Biblical love is not irritable or resentful. Biblical love does not rejoice at wrongdoing. Biblical love rejoices with the truth. Biblical love bears all things. Biblical love believes all things. Biblical love hopes all things. Biblical love endures all things. The Scriptures beautifully flesh out what biblical love is and what it is not. Biblical love is patient and kind. Biblical love rejoices with the truth. Biblical love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. But, biblical love does not envy or boast. Biblical love is not arrogant or rude. Biblical love does not insist on its own way. Biblical love is an irritable or resentful it does not rejoice at wrongdoing. Now, the first item the Holy Spirit mentions is that biblical love is patient. And that's the Greek word makrothumeo. Makrothumeo. And it means literally to be long tempered, not short fused. It's used almost exclusively in the New Testament of being patient with people, not with circumstances. The early church father, John Chrysostom, said, it is a word which is used of the man who is wronged and easily has it in his power to avenge himself. But he'll never do it. Makro thumeo. Now this is quite different from how the world works, isn't it? Uh, no less of a philosopher than the great Greek philosopher Aristotle gives us a worldly principle when it comes to being long-suffering and patient. Aristotle taught that vengeance is a virtue, that through revenge we teach 
the wrongdoer to cease his wrongdoing, lest he receive wrong in return. Basically, he said it's good to do bad if you're going to stop bad. At least it feels good. Friends, natural man loves justice. And yet, biblical love urges patience. Not because they deserve it, but because Christ's love gives us the ability to extend love even to the unlovely, even when they're unlovable. Now, worldly math looks very different from Jesus' math. Worldly math looks like Lamech's math back in Genesis chapter 4 and verse 24. In Genesis 4, 24, Lamech gives the world's math. When he, after being wronged, brazenly, defiantly says, if Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then mine ought to be seventy-sevenfold. And yet Jesus' math calls us to forgive, not seven times, but seventy-seven. Friends, that's going to take some long-suffering, isn't it? We're going to need a long fuse in refusing retribution when we can make it happen. Biblical love calls us to a kind of living that's much more willing to be taken advantage of than to take advantage of. And that's not what modern society is known for today. What would our churches, what would our marriages, indeed, what would our society look like if God's people loved God's way and so that we were known by our patience instead of our vengeance? Biblical love involves a loving, long-suffering towards people, as we see in the example of the biblical God's biblical love expressed in 2 Peter 3 and verse 9. 2 Peter 3.9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill His promises, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Friends, biblical love is patient and kind. Now, biblical love being patient is, is sort of being passive when others are being aggressive. But, but love being kind, well, that's an active thing. It, it, it's a love that takes the initiative. Do you know a Christian who's characteristically kind? Think about a person that you know who is, who is like Christ in their kindness. That person has a powerful witness, don't they? Having laid a foundation with the positive about what biblical love is, the Holy Spirit's going to begin to deal with the negative, what biblical love is not. If agape love is a self-sacrificial love, then the opposite of agape love would be a self-centered kind of living. And indeed, that's just what we see. Biblical love does not envy or boast, it is not arrogant or rude, it does not insist on its own way, it is not irritable or resentful. It'd be irritable when people say things, and then you can hold your tongue and be resentful and not say things, and both are still wrong. Envy is a strong kind of jealousy. 
And friends, there's always going to be people who are, who are smarter, who are, who are younger, who are fitter, who are prettier, uh, people who are better paid, people who receive more accolades, people who are in a higher position so they make decisions that affect your life. The point is, someone somewhere will always seemingly have it better. And if we're not very careful, those realities will breed envy. And that will cause us a lot of grief, and it will cause God's church a lot of strife. If we leave selfless love and instead focus on being self-focused, we will become self-centered. And we will inevitably feel sorry for ourselves, and, and we will then begin to feel bitter towards others who we perceive have it better one writer put it this way, quote, Jealousy is not a moderate or harmless sin. It was Eve's jealousy of God to which Satan appealed so successfully. She wanted to be like God, to have what he has and to know what he knows. And jealousy had an integral part of that first sin from which all other sins have descended. Because the next sin in the Bible is, is the grievous sin of murder. And do you know what it was caused by? Cain's jealousy of his brother Abel. And then later... Uh, Joseph's brothers sell their brother into slavery. and Indeed, they sell him to death, but he spared that. Why? Because of jealousy. And Daniel is thrown into the lion's den because of the jealousy of other officials who don't like him rising when all he's doing is standing for God. Jealousy caused the older brother to resent the father's attention on the, the wayward prodigal son and his wonderful, beautiful return. And we could go on and on and on and on through the Bible, through history, through our diaries. Friends, jealousy is something that we either nurture, you can feed it in your heart, or it's something you give over to God. All you can do with jealousy, you can either nurture it and it'll get worse and stronger and more powerful, you become more bitter and resentful and irritable, or you can give it over to God and he can help you move on. If you have it, sooner or later you won't be able to hide it. Because the root of feeling jealousy will produce the fruit of dealing jealously. It will lead to your need to elevate yourself in front of others. But biblical love doesn't do that. Biblical love doesn't boast. A jealousy will lead to you slighting others, but biblical love isn't arrogant or rude. A jealousy will lead you to not wanting them to win, so you'll do whatever you can so you win or at least they lose. Even if it's something silly and petty and childish. When jealousy stands at the ready, never pretty. But biblical love 
does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable, nor resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. It should not pass our notice today in all of this discussion of biblical love that the fruit of the Spirit pretty neatly overlaps what biblical love looks like. Love is patient and kind. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control. Friends, what does a joyous goodness full of faithfulness and gentleness marked with self-control look like? I think it looks a lot like someone who doesn't envy or boast. It looks a lot like someone who isn't arrogant or rude. It looks a lot like someone who does not insist on their own way. Someone who's not irritable. Someone who's not resentful. Someone who does not rejoice at wrongdoing. Someone who rejoices with the truth. Who believes all things, bears all things, hopes all things. And someone who endures all things. Notice also that biblical love is described in the Bible with verbs. That's because biblical love is not emotions or abstractions. Biblical love is a tangible action, a decision. Biblical love does not merely or even chiefly feel certain things. You know what? Sometimes we may not feel love towards someone, especially if they've hurt us. But biblical love chooses to do the loving thing for that other person. All of these verbs in our passage are in the present tense, in the Greek. That means they they denote a continuous kind of action, an ongoing kind of action. Actions that become habitual. They become ingrained in us by gradually, constantly, willfully repeating them until they become our character. Hey, did you know that biblical love looks like Jesus? You see... In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways, but in these last days, He's spoken through the Son, which is why when you study the life of Jesus, you see that Jesus is patient and kind. You see that Jesus does not envy or boast. You see that Jesus is not arrogant or rude. You see that Jesus doesn't insist on His own way. Jesus isn't irritable or resentful. Jesus never rejoices at wrongdoing. Jesus always rejoices in the truth. Jesus bears all things and indeed endures all things. Now if Jesus is the perfect example of biblical love lived out in our broken world, what does the opposite of biblical love look like when it's lived out amongst Christians? It looks like the situation in Corinth. It looks like the envy we saw back in chapter 3 and verse 3, where we're told there's jealousy and strife among the church. Are you not of the flesh behaving in only a human way? It looks like the arrogant boasting in the church in Corinth, where, where some are shouting, I follow Paul, and others say, well, I follow Apollo. It looks like the 
jarring rudeness. The culturally unseemly inappropriateness of of some people praying with their heads covered and others with their heads uncovered when the choice was chiefly serving to make themselves be the center of attention in their action. It looks like the insistence of one's own way that left the rich tipsy and satiated while the poor were hungry and humiliated even in the Lord's Supper in church services. It looks like the bitterness and, and pettiness that dragged saints off to court instead of permitting themselves just to be wrong for the sake of Christ. It looked like those who rejoiced at wrongdoing, which prompted Paul to write in chapter 5, it's actually reported that there's sexual morality among you of a kind that's not tolerated even among the pagans. If we're not very careful, if we're not exceedingly prayerful, It's going to look like our church if we do what we do without love. Which brings us to our final point today. Point number three. Why is biblical love the supreme measure of Christianity? Why is biblical love the supreme measure of Christianity? Here's the Bible's answer. Verse 8 through verse 13. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly. But then, we're going to see face to face. Now I, I know in part, and then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. And so now, faith, hope, and love abide in these three. But the greatest of these is love. Now the Corinthians were peacocking to see who could prophesy the most, who knew the most, who spoke in tongues the most. And in so doing, they failed to understand that they would be a much stronger church. They would be a much more biblical church. They focused on trying to love each other. Paul predicts a day, a coming day, where we don't need prophecies because we shall see Jesus clearly, face to face. Paul predicts a day when tongues will cease. Indeed, in the Greek, it's in the middle voice. It's the only one in the middle voice. So Paul literally predicts that tongues will cease themselves. We'll talk more about that on a future Sunday. The idea being, grammatically, they're going to die out of their own accord. Church history seems to indicate that happened within the first few centuries of Christianity. It died out. And so Paul calls us all to grow up. Instead of peacocking regarding who is the most important knower of of special spiritual wisdom, who speaks in some special spiritual language, who can best unravel the mysteries, the prophecies, he says, grow up. But when I was a child, I spoke like a child, and I thought like a child, and I reasoned like a child, but when I became a man, I gave up my childish ways. And so to a city renowned for its its brass mirrors, the Corinthians 
well understood that, that even the best of ancient mirrors offered just a dim, distorted view of the reality they were to be reflecting. Now today, you and I see a mirror, we see a crisp mirror, we see glass with, with paint on the side and, and the back, and the light refracts, and it's quite crisp. It's not how ancient mirrors work. They, they worked, but they worked dimly, not perfectly. So Paul says, for now, we see in this mirror dimly. But one day, we're going to see it face to face. Right now, we, we just kind of know stuff in part, but there's coming a day where we shall know fully, just as right now, we are fully known by our Lord. Things are going to get clearer as we get closer, and one day we shall see Jesus face to face, and when we do, prophecies and mysteries and tongues that seem so spectacular are going to be so useless. But here are three things that are still going to be around, indeed abound, throughout eternity. So now faith, hope, and love abide. Faith will remain forever. Do you know why? Because Hebrews 11.6, faith pleases God. And he's going to be pleased forever in eternity. Faith is simply trusting in the Lord. And we're going to be trusting in the Lord for eternity. That's going to be true for us in spades because our, our faith will be face to face. There'll be no discrepancy, no variance, no concern. It will be very settled as a matter in our heart. Romans 15, 13 says that we worship the God of hope. That is, God is still going to be God in eternity. And our hope will not be put to shame in eternity, but it will be fanned into flame when we see the blazing glory of His frame. We will still have faith. We will still have hope. Verse 13, and so now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but here it is, the greatest of these three is love. Now, faith, hope, and love occur together as a holy triad many times in the New Testament. It's subtle, so we sometimes miss it. But I love the way the three are weaved together in Galatians 5. So beautifully, we see this triad. Galatians 5 I believe it's verse 5, says, For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. Verse 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Friends, God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. Without love, we are not Christians. If we go out this week and live out our faith without love, the world will never see Jesus in us. They will only see stern religionists, harsh moralists, and judgmental, hypercritical Pharisees. Let's instead follow the counsel of Ephesians 5 and be imitators of God. As dearly loved children and live a life of love. Just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. 
So instead of being a stench in the trench, who reacts like the world when provoked by the world, let's live like our Lord who overcame the world through self-sacrificial agape love. To those ends, let's pray today. Every head bowed and every eye closed. Lord Jesus, we believe Your Holy Word. So we believe that possessing anything or sacrificing everything without biblical love is nothing. We believe that love is patient and kind. That love does not envy or boast. That it is not arrogant or rude. That it does not insist on its own way. That it's not irritable or resentful. That it does not rejoice at wrongdoing but rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. So Holy Spirit, please, help us to love patiently and kindly, to not envy or boast, to not be arrogant or rude, to not insist on our own way, to not be irritable or resentful. Help us, Lord Jesus, to not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoice in the truth. Please, would you give us the grace to bear all things, to believe all things, to hope in all things, to endure all things. Help us to ever remember that biblical love is the supreme measure of Christianity. That your love never diminishes your holiness, that your love never compromises your truthfulness. And that you call each of us to faith, hope, and love, but love is the greatest of these. Indeed, if we're really honest, love is probably the hardest of these. And so thank you, Father, that we can love because you first loved us. Amen.